0: Cornwall Church, we're so glad that you're with us. Whether you are here in the building in Bellingham or watching online, so glad you are making time this holiday weekend to be with us. And a special shout out to my friends in Skagit Valley. Miss you guys. Excited to see you next weekend. Um, If we've not met, my name is Scott Moon. I'm the interim campus pastor at our uh, at our campus in Skagit Valley. And I get to be up here with you today. And I'm really excited because I get to share a story, a story straight out of scripture with you. A story that's absolutely incredible. It's a true story being that it's in scripture. Um, It's a story that includes adventure, intimidation, fear, faithfulness, and God's supernatural deliverance. It's a story that includes an evil plot, a divine intervention, life in a foreign land before safely returning home. Now you may be thinking to yourself, that sounds a lot like the Exodus story. And it does. But it's not. It's a different story that has very um, common parallels to the Exodus story. It's the story that follows the, the birth story of Jesus Christ. It's the story that follows the Magi coming to visit Jesus Christ. It's the story of Joseph and Jesus and Mary fleeing Israel to go to Egypt to find refuge, to find safety from King Herod's evil plan. Now, before we get into this story, I want to provide a brief timeline so we have an idea of when this is happening and what's happening and what kind of timeline we're looking at. Jesus is expected to be born around 5 or 6 B.C. The shepherds see him sometime between his literal birthday and his eighth day. And then on his eighth day, he goes to the temple and and he meets Simeon and Anna literally when he is eight days old. Then there's a gap. Because it's believed that the Magi don't see Jesus until he's one to two years old. Soon after the Magi show up, Jesus um, and his family leave Israel and head for Egypt. And then... King Herod dies around 4 BC. Now, this is a relatively short passage that we're looking at today. It's found in Matthew 2, so if you have your Bible or phone and you want to follow along, we would love for you to do that. You can turn to Matthew 2. We're starting in verse 13. If you don't have that, you can. Um, we'll put the scripture on the screen for you. But here's the cool thing. It's only 10 verses. In those 10 verses, there are three clear sections. Each section has a reference to Old Testament, to an Old Testament passage, which is really interesting. And also, there are three dreams in just 10 verses. It is a lot of fun. Now, one thing I want to highlight, why does Matthew reference the Old Testament so much? Because Matthew's audience, his primary audience, audience is the Jewish people. So we will see again and again that Matthew is saying the Old Testament, prophets, Moses, etc., they talked about the coming Messiah, and he's referencing these different passages to point to the reality that Jesus is that Messiah. It's an incredible story, and there is one reoccurring theme that we will see, and it's a reoccurring theme that not only will we see it to be true in this day, but it can be true in our day, one day at a time as we live our life. So let's jump in. Verse 13 and 14, this is what it says. When they, the Magi, had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Scott's paraphrase. Joseph, an angel shows up to Joseph and says, Joseph, you got to get out of town, get married, get Jesus, hit the road, get a few things, and start that 75-mile journey to Egypt, because if you stay here, you are putting Jesus in harm's way. Jesus is the target. He, there is a bounty on his head. Herod wants him dead. This is not Joseph's first dream you may recall that Joseph hears news that Mary is pregnant and he's like wait say what that had nothing to do with me like wait what and he feels betrayed and he's confused and he doesn't know what to do but we know that scripture says that he's a righteous man so he plans to quietly divorce Mary but an angel shows up to him in a dream and in that dream the angel brings clarity and peace. The angel confirms, Joseph, the baby that is growing in Mary's womb is God's son, Emmanuel. He will be named Jesus, the savior of the world. Take peace. Mary has been and remains faithful to you. You can take her home to be your wife. And Joseph does just that. This dream doesn't bring peace, does it? The dream is, run! Get out of town! leave now because somebody wants to kill Jesus. So it doesn't bring peace, but it is absolutely clear. The instruction is so, so clear. But we also have to admit, we have to acknowledge that there are unanswered questions. The instruction is clear, but you have to think that Mary and Joseph are having questions. Okay, Egypt, why? Why Egypt? What's in Egypt? How how long will we live there? Will we find community there? Will we find a church there? How will we make a living there? Sometimes we read scripture and we suck the humanity out of it. We read it as facts. It's just telling us a bunch of facts. But I think it's important for us to consider what would it be like to be in their shoes? What would it be like to have that dream? And so there's this these uncertainty, there's this uncertainty that looms for Joseph. And yet what we see is that Joseph takes action. Joseph faithfully follows God's guidance despite not having all the answers. Joseph faithfully follows God's guidance despite not having all the answers. As we continue in this passage, this is what it says. So he got up took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. Joseph doesn't waste time wondering, did that dream really happen? I'm guessing you've been there where you have a dream and you wake up and you're just totally confused, like, huh? He doesn't do that. He doesn't overly analyze this dream. He doesn't think, okay, was the angel speaking figuratively or literally? No, 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 he wakes up He he hears, he believes, he trusts, and he faithfully follows. He hears, he believes, he trusts, and he faithfully follows God's instruction. What would that be like for you? You have a dream. And in that dream, an angel says to you, you need to go. You're in harm's way. Get your family and go to a different country to find refuge, to find safety, you're fleeing your family, you're fleeing the country, you're fleeing your job, you're fleeing your community, you're leaving your church, going to an unknown. What would that be like for you? What would you experience in that moment? What we see is that Joseph and Mary, they left what was known. To follow God into the unknown. They left what was known to follow God into the unknown. As they faithfully followed God's guidance, surrender, trust, and courage were required. Surrender, trust, and courage were required. They had to say, God, I want your will. I want your way. I want your dreams. I want your plans to be true in my life more than I want my own. I have my own thoughts, my own opinions, my own hopes, my own desires, but I'm choosing to put those to the side because your instruction is clear in my life. So, Lord, I am going to surrender to you. It requires trust because if at, at this point The angel didn't tell Joseph the outcome of the story. He just told him the first step. So he doesn't know how this is going to end, how it's going to play out, what he can expect. But he knows God. And he knows that God is good. That he loves him. That he has great plans and that he can trust him. But to trust God and to walk with God into the unknown requires courage. There's nothing comfortable about that. It requires courage. Courage, and we see Joseph and Mary walk in that. So they arrive in Egypt, and it's believed that there is a Jewish community in Egypt at this time, and um, that it's likely they found community as a part of this group. They found a home. Maybe they started getting to know people. They found a church. They start settling in, but all along they know that this is a temporary home. And it feels temporary, and they are long awaiting, they are hoping, they are eagerly anticipating the news that they can return to their home home, if you know what I mean. So let's continue. Verse 15 B. And so was fulfilled this, or and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I call my son. Out of Egypt I called. My son, Matthew here, is quoting Hosea 11, chapter 1. Hosea was written 700 to 740 years before the birth of Jesus. Matthew is quoting it here because what we'll see is is when we look at Hosea, he's speaking to his figurative son. He's telling his figurative son, Israel, his people, that he will rescue them out of slavery from Egypt. But here, Matthew quoting it here, what he's saying is that God is saying this to his literal son, Jesus. I will call you out of Egypt to return to Israel. Egypt, there's a lot of history with Egypt. If you've read the Old Testament, you're familiar. There is a lot of history with Egypt. Now, if I were to ask you, what is the main thing that you remember about the Israelites' experience in Egypt, what might you say? Slavery. Slavery, absolutely 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And what I find absolutely incredible, Matthew is here, he's referring to Hosea. Hosea is referring to a time before him. And there are incredible parallels, as I mentioned already, from the Exodus story to our story today. You see, Moses was born into a time when Pharaoh wanted to kill Jewish baby boys. But God's hand was on Moses and protected Moses, and in time, he would call Moses to return to Egypt to rescue his people out of slavery. Jesus was born under the rule of a similar king, a king who wanted to, as we read, and will kill around 20 Jewish boys in an effort to kill Jesus, but God's hand protects Jesus. Jesus. And God will work through Jesus in such a way, not just to rescue the people from slavery, but to rescue the people from slavery to sin and the consequences of that guilt. He will work through Jesus to save all of humanity, anyone and everyone who who would believe in him as their Lord and Savior. So that they could have eternal life, so that their relationship with God the Father could be made right. In these first first verses, in this first section, we see that God guides Joseph, Jesus, and Mary to flee to Egypt to find refuge from an evil king who wants to kill Jesus. And then he calls his son out of Egypt to return to Israel so that God can eventually rescue his people through Jesus. Isn't that awesome? Again, keeping in mind the audience is Jewish. Matthew is laying out a plan where they're saying like, remember this, Moses is the hero of Israel. Remember that? He is incredible and Jesus is the new Moses. Moses rescued our people from slavery. Jesus is the new hero. He will rescue all of humanity from the consequences of sin. He is laying out a case before his Jewish readers, his audience, to say Jesus is the Messiah. Let's keep going. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its surrounding vicinity who were two years old and younger in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. King Herod is a power-mongering king. He is evil, he is self-serving, he is prideful, he is arrogant, and he is threatened by the news that a new king has been born. And so he goes on an all-out pursuit to exterminate that threat. And so he orders that that his soldiers would kill all the baby boys who are two years old or younger in Bethlehem. It's thought that that was around 20 boys, 20 boys murdered so that a man could remain in his position of power, absolutely corrupt, absolutely evil, absolutely self-serving. This is what it says as we continue, verse 17 and 18. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Because they are no more. Matthew quotes the prophet Jeremiah. This was written about 600 years before the birth of Jesus, who was known as a weeping prophet to declare the agony that resulted from Herod's evil act. Now, Rachel was seen as the mother of Israel, and so as he quotes this passage where he says Rachel is weeping, it's basically declaring that all the moms and all of Israel is weeping over this incredible evil against the boys, the sons of Israel. But let me point out something that's really, really incredible in the midst of this. This passage, Jeremiah 31, 15, is all about lament and appropriately so. But Jeremiah 31 is is in the middle of a section of Jeremiah. He's the weeping prophet. It's a hard read if you haven't read Jeremiah, it's challenging. But you get to chapter 30 through 33, and that is a section of scripture, of his book, that that is filled with comfort, that is filled with consolation, that is filled with joy. Why? As they look toward the coming Messiah. In essence, what Jeremiah is declaring is in the midst of this hurt, in the midst of our captivity, in the midst of losing our sons, the sons of Israel, there is still hope because someday... The Messiah will be born. Someday, this one who's been foretold will be born and he will rescue his people. So Matthew is pointing his readers yet again to the truth that while there is hardness, while, while there is hardship, while there is sadness and deep hurt that results from Herod's act and many other evil acts in their day, that there is hope. There is hope because Jesus the Messiah of the world has arrived. He has been born. Hope was born. And the truth that's embedded in this section is that as they faithfully followed God's guidance, there is hope in the hurting. As they faithfully followed God's guidance, there is hope in the hurting. I imagine that word of Herod's act got back to Mary and Joseph. Can you imagine what it'd be like to be them, knowing that his plan, his plot was to kill their son, which he was unsuccessful in doing, but in so trying to take their son out, trying to murder Jesus, he successfully murdered 20 other boys. And now there's 20 families that don't have a son, a beloved son, I wonder, did Joseph and Mary consider, why? Why why did you protect ours? And I imagine they think back to the dreams that they had, that you will carry the Christ child, Emmanuel, God, with us. And maybe that offered some sense of consolation, but I imagine there's still incredible weight there. But why? Why did God protect Jesus? Because... As much as those boys were sacrificed in an effort to kill Jesus, Jesus would choose to sacrifice himself in an effort to save all of humanity. Does that make the loss of 20 boys' lives easier? Of course not. But it does bring hope in the midst of devastation. It does bring hope in the midst of devastation now before I continue to the third and final section that we're looking at today I want to draw attention to something that Jeremiah said Jeremiah refers to the coming Messiah three different times in his book as the branch or the shoot and you may be thinking that's really odd if you've never heard that and it does seem odd but hang on to that because that's gonna come into play in just a minute okay let's continue verse 19 After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who were were trying to take the child's life are dead. Second time in this passage, Joseph is sleeping. He has a dream. The angel shows up and and gives him the long-awaited news that it is now safe to go home, home. Like, get up and go home. And as we know, Joseph is a man of action. Joseph doesn't need a whole lot of convincing. When God guides and directs, Joseph faithfully follows again and again. We see this to be true about him. Verse 21, so he got up took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. He gets their things. He gets their, the family. They hit the road. They, they have what they can carry. They begin the 75-mile journey home, and I got to believe that it felt a whole lot more exciting this time than the last time. They're heading home. But before long, Joseph hears something, and I think it strikes fear into his heart. Maybe it steals a bit of that joy, that eager anticipation to get home and to catch up and to see what's going on in Bethlehem and to to connect with family and friends and see what's happened in the time that they've been away, but something shifts, and we see what shifts. Verse 22, but when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. King Herod had multiple sons. His sons, he divided his kingdom up and gave them to his sons. His son Archelaus was ruling over Judea. Judea is where Bethlehem was and Archelaus was known as an evil man, a cruel man, a violent man, more so than his dad. His dad ordered massacres. It's, the word is, history would say, that Archelaus ordered more and greater massacres than his dad. And so Joseph was afraid. Joseph was afraid. He didn't know where this was going. He knew the last thing he heard is the angel said, it's, it's okay, go home, it's safe. The one who wanted to kill Jesus is dead. But then God meets him again, and this is what it says, verse 22, the second half of 22 and 23. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. Dream number three, lucky guy, right? I don't know about you, but I would love to sleep and God to speak absolutely crystal clear to me in a dream and be like, here's what you gotta do, Scott. That would be awesome. Maybe online you're a little more excited than those in the room about that opportunity, but anywho, He has a third dream, and he again hears clarity. He says, the angel says, you have a right to be afraid. Go not to Bethlehem. Go to Galilee. Go to Nazareth. Make a home in Nazareth. Settle in in this small town called Nazareth. Here's the thing that we have to see, that we have to notice, is as they faithfully follow God faithfully guides. As they faithfully follow, God faithfully guides. You may have noticed at this point that, that God doesn't lay out, he didn't lay out the entire plan for Joseph through prayer or through, through this dream. No, it took three dreams He prayed, or or excuse me, he was sleeping and he had dream number one, which said, flee, go to Egypt. He had another dream sometime later, which he had to wait for. He had to wait for instruction. And that dream said, it's safe to go home. And then the third dream says, to a new home. Not Bethlehem home, but to a new home. As he faithfully, or as they faithfully follow, God faithfully guides One step at a time. One step at a time. Part of that verse, the second half says, this was to fulfill what the prophets, prophets, plural. Previously, it was Hosea. Then it was Jeremiah. This is plural. It's not very common that a New Testament author is quoting plural prophets. So what is that about? But he quotes multiple prophets, saying he will be called a Nazarene. Now, what's interesting about this is not only does he quote multiple prophets, but if you were to Google search this or whatever Bible software you have, search this, this quote is not in the Old Testament, which then makes you go, what's he quoting? And what I believe is that he is quoting um, a broader theme There are prophets that speak to, that that foretell what the life of the Messiah will be like. In essence, the prophets say, here are indicators. Here is what you are looking for. When you see someone that you think could be the Messiah, weigh them against this. Measure them against these different things that we've said. In this situation, it's a broader concept. It's a broader topic. It's a broader prophecy. But there are themes about who the Messiah would be in regards to what would his life be look like. Let me share with you two thoughts about what Matthew could be doing here. The first is, he says, um, the Nazarene. To be called a Nazarene, not a compliment. Not a compliment at all. The Jewish people didn't look to Galilee or to Nazareth as a place where they upheld the law of God. They didn't look to those regions with respect and honor and awe. Instead, they actually looked down upon this region. Which, I don't know if you remember Pastor Bob's first sermon in our Christmas, Past, Present, and Future. But Jesus chose to be born into a lineage that had some really shady characters in it who made some really poor life choices. And so he is born, he, he is called the Nazarene. I don't know if you remember, but Philip, in John chapter 1, Philip meets Jesus, and he goes to his friend Nathanael, and he says, I met the Savior of the world, Jesus of Nazareth. And instead of Nathanael being like, yes, We've been waiting for him for a long time. Let me go meet him. Show me. I want to meet this guy. I want to talk to him. I want to hear his teaching. His response? Nazareth. I imagine his nose is up in the air, by the way. Nazareth. Can anything good come from there? He doesn't even know Jesus. The reputation of Nazareth exceeds him trusting his friend. Can anything good come from Nazareth? So why? Why is Matthew quoting this? Well, perhaps in referring to a broad, he's referring to the broader theme that's foretold that the coming Messiah would live a humble life, that he would experience rejection, and that he would actually become a suffering servant. Psalm twenty two. Isaiah 53 and other passages speak to this idea that the Messiah will be a suffering servant. So perhaps that's what Matthew is saying, that there's this broader theme of the life of the Messiah. And it's fulfilled in him being a Nazarene. The second it could be is that uh, Matthew, led by the Spirit, he saw a connection between the word Nazarene and the Hebrew word netzer. The Hebrew word netzer, which means branch or shoot. Remember, I asked you to remember what uh, the prophet Jeremiah referred to Jesus, referred to the Messiah as three different times, three different occasions in his book the branch, the shoot. So is it possible that Matthew here is again drawing on the Old Testament knowledge of the Jewish people who are his audience and yet again is saying like, look, this is another evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. Jeremiah 33 verse 15 says, in those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch, capital B, a righteous branch of David to spring forth and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. While we don't know exactly what Matthew was intending by quoting multiple prophets, this broader theme, I believe that both the things that I suggest to you are true because they're both fulfilled in Jesus. He was a suffering servant. He came to a place, to the world that he created, to be rejected and judged by men, to be spat on, to be beaten and to be crucified so that, He could rescue you and me. And I also believe that Jesus as the Messiah is the branch and that he does rule. He does rule with justice and righteousness. As they faithfully followed God's guidance, God brought his kingdom to earth. As they faithfully followed God's guidance, God brought his kingdom to earth. This story takes place in the real mess of the real world at the time. Jesus was born in the mess. He was born into the darkness. He was born to be the light and hope in a world that desperately needed him. He did not shy away from getting into real life and as we've seen in this story, throughout this story, God faithfully guides again and again Joseph and Mary and Jesus so that his kingdom would come. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that God who guided Joseph and Mary guides you and guides me every day. Every day. He cares about you. He cares about your life. He wants to guide you to the life that he has for you. One of the truths that we learn in this story is when God guides, we need to faithfully follow We need to faithfully follow. John 14, 23, Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. It's not a suggestion. It's it's a mandate. It's a declaration. If you love me, your love is demonstrated by obeying me. Now, just to be clear, do I do that perfectly? (laughs) No. No. Do any of us? No. No. Does this earn us salvation? Does works earn us eternity? Absolutely not. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying that when we love him, when we love Jesus, we do our very best to faithfully follow. Luke 9.23, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. As Christians, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, When God guides, we need to faithfully follow. It is that simple. And when we don't, it is sinful. We need to faithfully follow. Here's the cool thing, we can apply everything that we've learned about what faithfully following looks like from the story of Joseph and Mary to our lives. The first thing, we can faithfully follow God's guidance despite not having all the answers. Anyone else get annoyed by that, by the way? Right? Like, God's like, go. And you're like, okay, well, what next? Nothing. You're like, mm, I don't want to wait. <laughs> I got things to do, God. Don't you know I got things to do? I have a to-do list. I want to get more done. I want do to do more things for you. We don't get to see the whole plan at the same time. And yet what we're called to is to faithfully follow God's guidance one step at a time, especially when we don't have all the answers. The second thing is for us to faithfully follow God's guidance into the unknown requires surrender, trust, and courage, because God guides us to the unknown. So it requires that we say, God, I'm going to choose to put my desires, my plans, my will, my opinion down over here while I say yes to you and your plan and your opinion, and then trust. That we would say, God, I know enough about you. I trust that you see all and that you're going to take care of me as I say yes, as I faithfully follow. And then that we would look to God to give us the courage that we need to say yes, even when it doesn't make sense to us. Did it make sense for Joseph and Mary to leave home that they had a community at? On one hand, no. And on another, absolutely yes. That other hand that was absolutely yes was because God saw all so that we would choose to have courage. The third thing, we, when we faithfully follow God's guidance, there is hope. There is hope in the hurt. When we follow God, it does not mean that we will not experience hurt. You, you know this. You understand this. Sometimes, though, I think we, we believe, at least to some degree, that when I say yes to God, I, I've earned his favor, so he's not going to bring hurt and hardship into my life, or he's not going to allow hurt and hardship into my life. And that's simply not true. That's not true. Read, if, as you read the Bible, every biblical hero experienced hurt and hardship. And yet, because a child named Jesus was born, there is an unsquashable hope. I like that word, unsquashable The fourth thing, when we faithfully follow, God faithfully guides. He will continue to guide us one step at a time. One step at a time. And the last, when we faithfully follow, God brings his kingdom to earth. He brings his kingdom to earth. And I know if you've been a part of any moment like that where you're you're thinking, what, you just did that through me? Are you serious? There is a joy. There is an elation. That is the abundant life that Jesus speaks of. And that is the result from us faithfully following. Um, Let me just, real quick tangent, I've said this before, I'm not asking you for your compliments after the message by sharing this with you. I'm just trying to share a little bit of real me. To be up here is scary. (laughs) It is. Because it's the, well, am I gonna be entertaining enough? Am I gonna share a new nugget? Am I gonna, God, are you gonna use me? How are you gonna show up? All these unknowns So the irony is that I am walking this out as I'm teaching it with you. So just... (laughs) And here's the thing. Every time I have the opportunity and the honor to teach, whether it be on this stage or any other stage, it is incredible to see how God shows up and meets and works through me to impact someone. Someone. Remember, I'm not asking for your compliments after by sharing that with you, okay? A couple questions I want you to think about. I want us to consider, in what area of your life do you need God's guidance? In what area of your life do you need God's guidance? Maybe you've been trying to figure it out for yourself on your own for too long, and you need God's guidance. Another question, in what area of your life do you currently need to faithfully follow his guidance? For some of us, we may know, we may have clarity that God is calling us to do this, to take this step of faith. And we've come up with all sorts of great reasons why that isn't the best thing right now. And perhaps this message is a very simple faithfully follow. It is a very simple call to faithfully follow what God is faithfully guiding you to. The greatest trap obstacle, pitfall to faithfully following God's guidance is a desire for self-rule, a desire for self-rule. As people, we want to rule our own lives and to make our own decisions and not surrender or submit to other people. That was evidenced in the Garden of Eden and every human being ever since. I recently was reading um, an Advent devotional, and there was a paragraph that was really, really powerful um, by a man named Paul Tripp. Um, the, The devotional was called Come Let Us Adore Him and this is what it says. We were made to live under God's rule. To, or, to recognize and submit to God's sovereignty isn't a loss of freedom. It is the only pathway to true human freedom. To try to establish your own sovereignty is like trying to drive a boat down a highway. It's not what you were designed to do, and it will not result in the life that you were created to live. Jesus willingly humbled himself and lived in poverty rather than sovereignty so that through his life and death, he would rescue self-sovereigns from themselves. He placed himself under broken and unjust human rule in order to liberate us from self-rule and transform us into people who celebrate and willingly submit to his rule. Isn't that amazing? He chose to take on poverty poverty rather than sovereignty in human form and to transform us into people who celebrate, celebrate and willingly submit to his rule, believing he will lead us into life to the full. He has great plans. Here's a challenge I wanna invite us all to do this week one day at a time. Um, As a church, if you've been at Cornwall for any period of time, you know that we want to be a church that prays first, that we pray first. And so I want to invite you to pray a simple prayer each day, maybe each morning this week, and this is what it is. God, show me where you are guiding me today and give me what I need to faithfully follow. God, show me. Help me to see. Show me where you are guiding me today and give me what I need to faithfully follow. Now right now, I wanna give you a chance whether you're at home in your living room or at a community center or here in the room in Bellingham. I'm gonna give you just like 10, 15 seconds to pray that on your own if you would like to and then I'll close us in prayer. Lord Jesus, you are amazing. And we thank you that you are a God who faithfully guides us. And Lord, um, I just ask that you would meet each of my brothers and sisters and you would help them see what you are guiding them to today. And then you would give them what they need to faithfully follow you. You are so good. And we thank you so much, Jesus, for being born into this world, leaving perfection to come here so that you would become a suffering servant, so that you could rescue us from death to life. What incredibly great news that is. I love you and pray these things in the name of Jesus.